Lord, we thank you once again for an opportunity to come together in your name, in your house, uh, and dive into your word. Lord, we know this is about you, uh, and you have uh, something that you want to show us uh, about yourself um, and uh, and about uh, the history of, of your chosen people, Israel. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand how these things apply to us today, that you would pierce our hearts and uh, challenge our minds. And Lord, we would we would be able to grow in you. Uh, if there's something that we can relate to, to uh, in this text, Lord, I pray uh, that uh, you would help us uh, bridge the gap and, and, and we wouldn't leave here the same. So fill us with your spirit, change us all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, so if you remember, uh, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the ark was captured, then it was brought back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, and then 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, Samuel, he led the people in repentance, and we see the people, unlike their first battle back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where they attempted to fight with uh, religiosity by using the ark, and they put their faith in the ark, this time in 1 Samuel chapter 7, they seek the Lord, they put away their foreign gods, and it says they serve God only. And what happens? They're victorious. Uh, The Lord gave them victory because they repented. Then, just when they were doing so great, we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. And what happens? They're asking for a new leader. Uh, Now, we know part of that was because Samuel had his two corrupt uh, sons that he appointed as judges over Israel, and they were basically taking advantage of the people. But God made it very clear that by rejecting the leadership that's put in place, they're really rejecting him as their authority. They're rejecting their king. Uh, And we talked about what that means, rejecting our king. Now... In this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 9, we'll go through the whole chapter tonight, we see God's going to give the people their king. See, God ultimately is going to choose this king uh, in the first king of Israel, King Saul, but he's choosing a king that the people are looking for. He's not choosing a king that he was looking for specifically. Ultimately, in this text, we're going to see that God gives the people the people's king. And that's the title of this teaching, The People's King. The People's King. Just tying my shoe. Sorry, I don't want to trip up here. It'd be embarrassing. First uh, Samuel chapter 9, picking it up in verse 1. It says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Berkerath, the son of Aphia, and ben- uh, Benjamite, a mighty man of power, okay? Specifically, it's focusing on Saul's father, Kish, and it says he's a mighty man of power. Now, this meant he was very wealthy, okay? He had a lot of money. Now, when you look at the people's king, uh, culturally, the people believed that if someone was wealthy, they had favor from God. If someone was material wealthy, you look like look at Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all these patriarchs they had they had material wealth so if someone had material wealth they believed that 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 was 
favor from God. See, the prosperity gospel isn't something new. It's existed since the beginning of time. It's existed in the Old Testament. We see even during Jesus' time, it exists in the New Testament. That's one of the reasons Jesus talks about money so often. He's trying to set the record straight. We see one example in Luke chapter 16. You don't need to turn there. But he gives the disciples this comparison between this rich man and, and Lazarus, this poor beggar. The rich man isn't even named. The, the beggar Lazarus is named because he was a friend of God. But he was poor. He had a rough life here on earth. And we see at the end, it was Lazarus that made it into the kingdom. And the rich man, he was burning in hell. Okay, so this is something that's come up time and time again. This is a belief that the people have right now. If someone's wealthy, if they have material possessions, that's God's favor. That's a, that's a king that we want. A, a man of wealth. A man of prosperity. That's why this is mentioned here. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Saul, he's literally tall, dark, and handsome. He's the most handsome man in the land. He's over a head taller, shoulder and head taller than anyone else in Israel. Now this would have been appealing because we know the main is, uh, main enemy of the Israelites right now is who? The Philistines, right? And they have a lot of giants. They have a lot of big guys. So they want this big king that, that can protect them. So materially, he's got it going on. Physically, he's got it going on. If he looks uh, like he's supposed to look, if he looks like the king we desire, then surely he must act like the king we've been hoping for. Uh, we shall see that that's not true. Now it's interesting, as soon as we're mentioned, uh, as soon as Saul is mentioned, we see his physical attributes and his material wealth, but we don't see God mentioned. God is not mentioned once in this introduction to Saul. Why? Because God's not in the picture as far as Saul goes. He doesn't have a relationship with God. God's in the picture, big picture. But as far as his relationship with the Lord, it's absent. We don't see evidence of a relationship with God uh, in Saul's uh, whole life, actually, towards the end, uh, even of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, please take one of the servants with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. Okay, donkeys were considered very valuable in that day. In fact, if you had more than one donkey, two or three, you were considered very wealthy. So we see this wealth again capitalized on in the text. So we see these donkeys, plural, uh, wealth, right? Uh, uh, they're, they're lost. And Saul, he needs to go search for these donkeys. But we're going to see as he's searching for the donkeys, he's going to find something else. He's not going to find exactly what he's looking for. Point number one. What we're looking for is not always what we find. What we're looking for is not always what we find. In other words, 
God uses the things that we're searching for to get us to the place that we need to be. That's exactly what we're going to see here in this text. God certainly will use circumstances in our life to direct us or even redirect us. Now, that doesn't mean that we should always be led by circumstances. But we do see specifically in this text that God did use circumstances to get Saul to his destination to ultimately answer his calling. Now, we can over-spiritualize this and say every single circumstance is some deep spiritual thing that God's trying to teach me. and some deep spiritual connection that he's trying to get across to me. Now, we know biblically that that's not the case. Not every single circumstance is some deep spiritual direction. But at the same time, in God's sovereignty, nothing happens by accident. Though sometimes things just happen, but those things that just happen, God will use those things to get our attention, to get things across to us, to redirect us, if you will. See, sometimes the things that we're searching for are good things. Sometimes the things that we're searching for are good things, and God will use those good things that we're searching for to ultimately get us to our destination. For example, I didn't come out to California to be the pastor of Calvary Chapel Running Springs. I came out to California because I believed the Lord was leading me and my family out here, and specifically the focus was Patmos. The Lord used that. To bring me here for such a time as this to do something different than I expected. So sometimes it's it's a good thing that we're looking for and God uses that good thing. And he says, I'm going to use this good thing, this good desire, and I'm going to get you where I need you to be. Sometimes, sometimes we're searching for bad things. We're searching for bad things and God can even use those bad things to redirect us and get us to that destination that he calls us to. When did God call Saul of Tarsus? When he was searching out Christians to persecute them, right? He was on the road to Damascus. He was seeking and searching out Christians to have them imprisoned and put to death. And what did God do? He intervened on the road to Damascus. He was thinking he was going one way for one purpose, but he was really going that way for a different purpose. And then later we see in that same text, he's saved. See, God will use the things that we're searching for. To get us to the place that we need to be. And that's what God will do with these donkeys. He's gonna, he's, he uses donkeys a few times in the Bible. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Verse Samuel chapter 9 verse 4. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim. And through the land of Shalisha. But they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim. And they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites. But they did not find them. See, Saul was on a quest to find these valuable donkeys and he failed. He's not going to find the donkeys. Cool thing about God, though, is God's going to use Saul's failure to get him to the place that he wants him to be. Yes, God will use the things that we're searching for to get us to our destination, but God will use our failures even to get us to our destination. See, sometimes our shortcomings are God's successes. And something that we think, oh man, I blew it. I didn't succeed. I didn't do this the way that I wanted to. God will use that failure to bring you to a place of spiritual success. He does it with the disciples constantly. Jesus does when he brings them on the boat and uh, they fail, their faith fails, but Jesus was using that to take them to a deeper level that they would understand how sovereign he is, that he too definitely controls 
controls the winds and the waves and ultimately all things. God uses this failure of Saul's to ultimately bring him success. If he would have found the donkeys, he wouldn't have ended up finding Samuel. And we know that's God's objective here. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 5. When they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, come let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And he said to him, look now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. So we see here they're talking about Samuel specifically, but it's the servant that speaks up and says, hey, we can't do this on our own strength. Uh, we should try to at least seek this guy that, that, that's a man of God and may have godly counsel. We see sign and sign again of Saul not being the spiritual leader that God would have him be. See, it's the servant that's ultimately leading Saul spiritual. spiritually. It's the servant that's making the spiritual suggestion. This guy's going to be the king of Israel. He should know about this man of God. He should know where he is and when he's lost, uh, when, when he's in a bind, a situation, he should know where the prophet of God is. But Saul, we, do, we see that he's not the spiritual leader that God desired him to be. But we see these things, this contrast between Saul and Samuel. Look at how he's described. I'll read it again. A man of God. He has relationship with God. He is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass, meaning we know that all his prophecies were fulfilled. None of his words fell to the ground, but he was also a truthful man. He was an honest man. He was an honorable man. He was a man that had a relationship with God. That's how Samuel's introduced in this text. Completely different than the person of Saul. We see a spiritual leader and an unspiritual leader. First Samuel chapter 9, verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, but look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? So Saul, right off the bat, he assumes, I need to bring Samuel a gift so that he'll give us this word and, and lead us to these donkeys. Now, part of this is, is cultural, and, and we'll get into this in, in the next verse. Uh, often people would bring prophets gift, gifts just to kind of bless them for giving them a word, uh, a word of wisdom or knowledge or prophecy or whatever the case may be. But we see something in Saul here. We see a truth that's revealed. His misunderstanding about the man of God is directly connected to his misunderstanding about God. He thinks he needs to give Samuel a gift for, for Samuel to bless him with a word. See, he thinks that he needs to earn favor. He thinks he needs to do something so that this man of God, a man that represents God, uh, will help him out. That's not how the man of God works, nor is it how God works. He thinks he needs to earn God's favor. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 and 9, we see that grace, we're saved by grace uh, through faith. It's a gift from God. He gives it to us freely. No strings attached. It's a free gift. We don't have to give the gift back. No, he gives us the gift so that we might receive the gift. 
Saul believes that he has to give Samuel a gift. He needs to earn this right to get this word. Now, we can do this as well. We often project our understanding of God on man and we'll project our understanding of man on God. I'll explain. Point number two. Man isn't God and God isn't man. Man isn't God and God isn't man. Let me clarify. We know Jesus is God and he's a man. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about projecting man's character on God. We'll do this. Uh, as many people will struggle with this with their, with their father. Uh, our father isn't the father. Okay. Our heavenly father isn't like our dad. And sometimes people, they've had rough relationships with their father and maybe their father was critical and judgmental and even abusive. Maybe, maybe he was not a good father. But that's not how God is. And often people, because they've had this bad experience with their earthly father, they'll project those character qualities to their heavenly father. But God, he's, he's our father, but he's not, he's not our, our earthly father. He's perfect. He's loving. He's selfless. He has our own best interest at heart always and forever. What characteristics have you put on God that don't line up with scripture? Are there characteristics that maybe your father, your dad had, or even a man had, spiritual leader could be, and you project those negative characteristics uh, onto God? Uh, because it, it's not fair, and I see this all the time. People, they, they'll think, man, God, God is so critical of me. He, he's this judging God, and I can never perform right. I can, I, I can never do enough. And it's like, no, 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 that's not, it's grace. You're under grace. He loves you just the way you are. He, he loves you perfectly. And I'll run into people that, that they'll run into this thing where, like, this wall with God. It's like, man, I think he's like my earthly father, but he's not. He's perfect. Are there characteristics that you project on God that aren't biblical? Because if we're projecting false characteristics on God, if that's what we believe about God, then our beliefs need to change so that we can have an accurate description, understanding about who God is. It goes both ways, though. Not only will we project man's character on God, we'll project God's character on man. Now, we're called to imitate God and, and bear his image, but we know that's a, a flawed image that we have right now. Follow me. I see this often uh, in the church. I saw it in my church, actually, that people will project a lot of God's characteristics onto the senior pastor, and they'll literally treat him like their savior, like he's the Messiah, like he is God. <laughs> and I don't think anyone does that here. You guys know I'm flawed. Uh, but but I had a pastor, Pastor Bob. That's what people would do. They would literally treat him like their 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 savior, like he was Jesus. And it was such a a flawed mentality and belief. And, and it really came to fruition when when he ended up falling. See, when he fell, a bunch of people left. Why? Because their Savior fell. It wasn't about me and the Lord at the church. It was about 
listening to Bob because he's this, he's this guy that's like not like a real man. In fact, there was one time, I remember him sharing it. He said he was sharing, uh, sharing at the refuge at a homeless ministry and, and a guy said to him, you're just a man. You're just a man. I was like, yeah, I know. I'm just a man. I'm not God. But it was interesting. Why would he say that? Because that's how people would treat him. They would, they would make that, make him like that image, like that idol, like he was more than a man. He was, he was a, a God. He was the Messiah. He was their savior. And then they were surprised when he was actually flawed when he ended up falling. It's such a sad thing. The point is, we do both of these. We project uh, man's character on God, and we'll project God's character on man. Now, let me clarify. We know we're supposed to imitate God's character, but sometimes we take the characteristics of God that man is not supposed to imitate, and we put it on them and vice versa. I'm just a man. We're all just men. We're all just women. Yes, created in God's image, being transformed into that perfect image of Jesus Christ. But we're not God. First Samuel chapter nine, verse eight. And the servant answered Saul again and said, look, I have here at hand one fourth the shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. So we see the servant had one shekel of silver, and this is what he's going to bless the servant with, uh, sorry, to bless Samuel with for giving them the direction. Now I mentioned to you that this was cultural, and we see it a handful of times in scripture. I'll show you one example in 2 Kings chapter 8. In 2 Kings chapter 8 with Elisha, um, I'm almost there, I can read it for you. Uh, verse 8, verses 8 and 9. And the king said to Haziel, speaking of Elisha, take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him saying, shall I recover from this disease? So we see that the king, he sends this man to Elisha with a gift so that he can hear a word from the Lord. This doesn't mean that Elisha required a gift. Okay. It was like coming to the church and tithing. You know, it's like you, you could still come to the church and not tithe, but we tithe because the Bible tells us, yeah, we should uh, take care of the, the ministers and the servants. That's kind of the mentality. They were giving them a, a gift uh, because they wanted to bless him. See, Samuel didn't uh, require a gift. It was just like a, a kind gesture. All right. First Samuel chapter nine, <clears throat> verse nine. Formerly in, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer, for he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Now, this is an interesting uh, verse. This could have been written when First Samuel was written. Uh, but remember, we don't know the author uh, of Samuel, because Samuel dies, I believe, in chapter 25. Uh, so he couldn't, he couldn't write first, uh, and second Samuel, okay, because he dies during, during the book. So, uh, some speculate that it could have been, uh, uh, Gad, it could have been Nathan, possibly even Jeremiah. Most people think Gad or Nathan, or that Samuel wrote up to chapter 25 and one of these prophets picked up. But this is a interesting verse here. Because it says, formerly in Israel, 
Obviously speaking about the past. These were past events. He says, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, come, let us go to the seer. Okay. Before uh, a prophet was called a prophet, it was called a seer. And seer, it really kind of means what it, what it sounds like. It's one that sees, literally one that, that sees into the future, one that sees things that other man can't see, one that sees spiritually. Okay. So they were called a seer, but we see in the text, uh, for he who is now called a, a, a prophet was formerly called a seer. So it appears that at least this verse was likely written during the time of the, the prophets. Okay. So likely could have been a prophet just bringing clarity. Uh, but it's just something interesting uh, to look at. I got no answers for you. It's just interesting. First Samuel chapter nine, verse 10. Then Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was, and they went up the hill of the city. They met some young woman going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? Now, this is interesting. Jewish legend says these women rushed Saul because he was what? Tall, dark, and handsome, right? Because he's a handsome man. They're like, we want to talk to this guy. So they ran up to them and has this com- they have this conversation about Samuel the seer. First Samuel chapter nine, verse 12. And they answered them and said, yes, there he is just ahead of you. Hurry now for today. He came to the city because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat for the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up for about this time. You will find him. So they went up to the city as they were coming into the city. There was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to to the high place. Now, the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, we'll read that next verse. But we see what's happening here. Uh, Saul and his servant has this interaction uh, with these ladies. The ladies uh, send them in the right direction towards where Samuel was going to be. And now we kind of see this little uh Behind the lines, couple verses. This is what's already happened. God's telling us this is what's already happened. This is what God already spoke to Samuel. And we'll get into that in a second. But this is so cool. I love this. In verse 15, it says, now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before, the day previous. So the Lord is speaking to Samuel in his ear. And Samuel knows it's the Lord because he knows his voice. But he doesn't just know it. He's listening to it. Okay, point number three. Know his voice and hear his voice. Know his voice and hear his voice. Or know his voice and listen to his voice. This is funny. God spoke to Saul through donkeys. He had to use donkeys to get him where he needed him, needed him to be. But he speaks to Samuel in his ear. Why? God had to use donkeys because Saul didn't have a relationship with God. He wasn't in tune with the voice of God. But Samuel, we learned way back in 1 Samuel chapter 3, that he knew the voice of God from a very early age, right? Uh, When he was sleeping and God said, Samuel, Samuel, ended up calling him four times. And that's where Samuel learned the voice of God. Why? Because he was in fellowship with God. He was in relationship with God. He, over time, began to recognize more and more clearly the voice of God. In John chapter 10, 
In John chapter 10, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd and he refers to his followers as his sheep. And he says this in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. See, Samuel, he knew the voice of the Lord, but he doesn't just, he didn't just know it. He didn't just hear it. He followed it. He, he did what God was asking him to do. He followed the direction the Lord gave him. Now, this is interesting. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, it says that he told Samuel in his ear. This in the ear is literally uncovered the ear. Okay, this is a, a phrase. Uh, if someone had a headdress on, if you lifted the headdress and whispered in their ear, that's what he's saying. God whispered, God whispered in Samuel's ear. He's speaking audibly to Samuel. This is awesome. This is amazing. God just whispered this little secret. Now, this isn't the only time we see God do something like this. So often in our lives, we want God to speak big and loud, right? Give me a sign. Show me a wonder. I want to see a healing. Like, show me a miracle, right? And that can happen. That's not always how it happens. We see Elijah ran, Elijah ran into the same thing in 1 Kings chapter 19. In 1 Kings chapter 19, First Kings 19, picking it up in verse 11. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rock in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice, a little whisper. And so often that's the way the Lord gets across to us. It's, it's, it's not always extravagant. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's a little whisper. Not that you're going to hear from him audibly. You might. I haven't. But the Lord often, often he whispers. Why? Because he wants us to tune into his voice. He wants us to focus. He wants us to be engaged. He wants us to be seeking to hear from him. If it was always big and extravagant, it'd be like, oh, God's going to do something crazy again. I'll just wait till it happens. No, he wants us to seek him out, to incline our ear to hear, to be silent before him for a little bit that we might hear that little whisper. But when he whispers, we got to recognize his voice. Do you recognize the voice of the Lord? Again, I'm not necessarily speaking, uh, talking about audible, uh, the audible voice, but the Lord, uh, he speaks through the word. He'll speak through people. We talked about sometimes he'll speak through circumstances. He'll speak through all these different things. We know that the sheep know his voice. He says, those that are mine, they know my voice. They know when I'm speaking to them and what I'm telling them. See, hearing the Lord's voice and recognizing it, it takes time, right? Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, Samuel didn't get it right away. He had to ask Eli, and Eli told him it was the voice of the Lord. And now Samuel, through all these years, he's old in age. He's, he's really almost perfected this, if you will. I know the voice of God. It takes time to, in, to be in tune, to understand what his voice sounds like, to see how he gets across to us specifically. You know the voice of your wife. 
You know the voice of your husband. If you don't have any, you know the voice of your friend. You know the voice of your brother, your sister, family members, people that you've what? Spent lots of time with. (laughs) When they call you on the phone, you don't have to look at caller ID. You hear that voice, you know who it is. Same thing goes with God. The more time we spend with him, the more we're going to recognize his voice. But again, it's not just about recognizing his voice. It's about hearing it, listening to it, and responding to it. The sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So God, the day before, he whispers this into Samuel's ear. Look what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Verse 16, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, there he is, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall reign over my people. So we see God, he gave a specific timeline. He said, when he spoke to him the day before, he says, tomorrow about this time. This teaches us something. See, Samuel, he wasn't just in tune to God's voice. He was looking for what God was going to do. He wasn't just listening for God's direction. He was looking for God's direction. And both of those are important. To to not just hear what God's telling us to do, but but waiting for it anxiously, eagerly, uh, looking for what, how did what, what he spoke to me, what he said to me in my devotions or through a message or however, through prayer, worship, how, how is that playing out in my life? Am I seeing it? Am I seeing what he spoke? Is what he spoke to me lining up with the direction that that I see in my life? See, Samuel, he wasn't just hearing this. He was looking for it. Why? Because he was confident in the word of the Lord. He, He knew what God spoke he would do. So he's looking for this thing to happen at this specific time. Tomorrow about this time. And he says, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man. Now we know he's telling him he's going to anoint him as the king of Israel, but this is important. God says he will send them a man. See, though in the last chapter, the people asked God to get off his throne. I don't want you to be my king anymore. We want a man as king, God. He didn't step off his throne. See, he was still in control. And though he didn't give them the king that he wanted, he did give them the king that they wanted. He's still on the throne. He's not going to get off the throne. I send you. I'm the one that sends you this man. Look what it says. So that was about yesterday. For I've looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw, saw, the Lord said to him, there he is, the man of whom I spoke. So 15 and 16 are the day before. 17 is what's happening presently. And he says, again, there is the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Now listen, God spoke to him the day before, said tomorrow about this time. But then God speaks to him again. See, God confirms his word with his word. He confirms his word with his word. Sometimes when God gives us a direction, he doesn't just give it to us once. Often he gives it to us more than once. So we have clarity. 
Now, he won't give us every detail to the direction in our life because he still requires us to walk by faith and not by sight. But nevertheless, we see oftentimes God will give us multiple forms of of confirmation. And more often than not, he gives us the confirmation through the word. He confirms his previous direction with his word once again. Now, this is something, this is mainly how the Lord will get things across to me through the word. Uh, Usually in my devotion life or sometimes uh, definitely when I'm studying as well, uh, but we're talking about this church-wide fast, the second Monday uh, of, of, of every month that we're going to start doing. If, that, if you guys weren't here on Sunday, I'm not trying to scare you away from the church. Um, this is something just the Lord that had been putting on my heart, and not just me, other leaders in the church. And it came up like four or five times. Where? In the Word. Just time and time again, this direction came. I was like, after the second time, I'm like, oh, really? Okay, we, we for sure are supposed to do this. And then it came up again. I'm like, if I don't do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel like I'm being disobedient. The point is, the Lord will continue to confirm things in his word. But we also have to be careful that we're not seeking confirmation for things that have already been confirmed. Meaning sometimes we try to prevent ourselves from walking by faith. God, tell me this a hundred times. Give me neon lights and signs that I know, I know, I know, I know. It's like, dude, I got to give you a little room for faith, right? I'm going to give you direction, but I got to leave room for faith. He speaks this time. He speaks so clearly to Samuel when it's going to happen, uh, where it's going to happen, to whom it's going to happen to. And it continues in First Samuel chapter 9. Verse 18, then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, please tell me, where is the seer's house? Saul is talking to the seer and he's saying, where is the seer's house? He doesn't have spiritual discernment. He's not in tune with God. Where's this? You're talking to him, Saul. Now, I'm not saying that he should have mysteriously known that that Samuel was the seer and he was talking to him. But on the flip side, Samuel knew who he was talking to. Why? Because he had a relationship with God. He was in tune spiritually and God had revealed that to him, Saul. He wasn't in tune spiritually. He doesn't know who he's talking to. Saul is looking spirituality in the face and he can't see it. He can't see it. First Samuel chapter 9, verse 19. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow we'll let you go and we'll tell you all that is in your heart. Samuel, right off the bat, he says, I am the seer. And then what does he say? He gives him direction. Go up before me to the high place. Leadership, spiritual leadership. That's what spiritual leaders do. They, they give the, the people, the people that God has entrusted to them, they give them direction. Why? To get them to the place that God's calling them to be. Hey, you need to go up to the high place. That's the next step because there, that's where things are going to, going to get interesting. And we'll see that next week as he's anointed king of Israel. But Samuel, he doesn't waste any time right off the bat. It's discipleship. Hey, this is what I want you to do. Go up here so you can get future direction about what's going to happen tomorrow. And he says tomorrow, look at verse 19. Tomorrow I will let you go. Now, remember, Saul was all worried uh, about his dad, worrying about him. Uh, back earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 9, he was like, man, we haven't found the donkeys. We've got to get word back to, back to dad or he's going to be so worried about me and yada, yada, yada. We see, and we'll see it here in the text, that Saul had anxiety. But, Samuel says, 
you got to wait for tomorrow. That would have been like frustrating, right? Like, dude, just tell me now. If you know, just tell me, right? You're the seer. You're hearing from God. Just give me the direction that I'm looking for. Saul, he's anxious and he has to wait to hear the word from the Lord. Will you wait for the Lord's direction in the midst of your anxiety? When you're anxious, when you're in the unknown, you know, don't know what's coming next. Now, let's put this into perspective. There were no cell phones, okay? There was no like texting dad, hey, I'm with Samuel, I'll get back to you tomorrow. No, there was no way for him to tell his dad. His dad has no idea what's happened to him. He knows that he went searching for donkeys long before, and now he's going to stay the night. So Saul is anxious. And sometimes we can fall into these anxious positions specifically when things are outside of our control. When we can't control our surroundings. Especially uh, when the, there seems like there's chaos and there's confusion and there's a lack of control in our lives. And we didn't receive the direction from the Lord. And he says, I'll tell you tomorrow. Tomorrow might be tomorrow. Could be a week from now. Could be months from now. Could be years from now. Tomorrow will come. But it doesn't always come tomorrow. It, it, it could come in a distant future in the midst of your anxiousness. Will you wait till tomorrow to hear from the Lord? Saul, we're going to see he waits despite his anxiety. He really doesn't have a choice at this point. Samuel says, wait for tomorrow and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you all that is in your heart. In other words, I'm going to tell you what you came to find out. Now they were searching for donkeys. They weren't searching for the wisdom and direction that they were going to receive from Samuel. They're looking for donkeys and Samuel's going to give them a kingdom. Okay, you want donkeys? I got something. Here's a kingdom from the Lord, the Lord's kingdom. He's going to tell him all that's in his heart. First Samuel chapter nine, verse 20. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them. Why did he tell him not to be anxious? Because he was anxious. Don't worry about the donkeys. Uh, they, they've been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on your, your father's house? Basically, he's telling him, you're the person that all Israel has desired. You're the king that they've been looking for. Now, this would have been like shocking news to Saul because he's not thinking about this. Israel's never had a king. And now you're saying that like, where are you going with this, Samuel? What do you mean? I'm the one that, that, that all of Israel desired. First Samuel chapter nine, verse 21. And Saul answered and said, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me like this? Saul appears to have humble beginnings. But what we're going to learn specifically in the next chapter is it's not humility. He's doubting God. He's doubting God's calling on his life. Humility is one thing, but doubting God's ability to use you is a totally different thing. That's saying that I don't trust the Lord to equip me, to use me in the capacity that he's called me. And that's where Saul's at. He's doubting God. Yes, you're of the smallest tribe. Yes, your family. All these different excuses you have, but God is calling you. Now, when God calls us to something... Yeah, there's going to be sometimes that initial fear sometimes. Uh, maybe a little initial anxiety, that, that, that uh, self-reflection of who am I? And now, the humble side, that's a good side. But when we let, allow that to lead to this place that we're like, no, 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 God, you got the wrong guy. You, you can't use me and we stand firm in that. 
That's, a, that's an offense to God. That's not having respect for God. It's not that we're confident in our own ability. It's that we're confident in the Lord's ability to use us and strengthen us and give us the power and gifts and everything we need to fulfill the calling. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, we'll see this next week. Um, it, it, he struggles with this calling big time. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 22. Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So Samuel already planned this whole thing out. Why? Because he trusted in God. He knew God was going to do exactly what he said. Verse 24. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here it is. What was kept back, it was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time, it has been kept for you. Since I said I invited the people, so Saul ate with Samuel that day. So this whole feast was for Saul. This feast that he was already preparing was for Saul in this specific moment that was going to happen. That's again how much Samuel trusted in the Lord of God, uh, the Lord God. Uh, we also see here there's this portion that's set apart. Now, this was a, 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 a choice piece of meat. This was one of the best pieces of meat that you could have. See, God had a chosen piece for his chosen one. And he gave Saul, his king, a portion. Not just any portion. He gave him his best portion. Lord, he does the same for us. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 24, it says this. The Lord is our portion, is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord, he gives us his best portion. He gives the chosen ones, his people, his children. He gives them his best portion. And what is that? It's himself. It's his whole self. He gives us himself. It's the greatest thing he could possibly give us. He gives us his all. But he gives us his best portion in hopes that we would give him our best portion. That we would give him our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not like there's strings attached, but God is giving Saul his best in hopes that Saul will give God his best. As the leader of Israel, he's trying to start the relationship off right. And we'll see, sadly, Saul won't give him his best. First Samuel chapter 9, verse 25. When they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on top of the house. Okay, this is a cultural thing. They would often eat on top of the houses. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. So we see Samuel, he's having this conversation with Saul. The next day, it says, they rose up early. They rose up early and he's going to send them out. Now, what we're going to see here is he's not sent out quite yet. Okay, uh, that last verse of uh, chapter 9 and continuing on in, in, in chapter 10, we're going to see uh, the anointing of Saul and what plays out after that. But the point of this is, as we see the characteristics of Saul and, and comparing them to the characteristics of Samuel, see, the people got the king that they chose. 
He was wealthy. He was tall. He was handsome. He, on externally, he, he looked like he had it going on. But spiritually, he, he was robbed. He didn't have a heart after God. And we see Samuel introduced as this man of God, this, this honorable man, this honest man, because that's how he was defined. He was defined by his relationship with God. The people, they got their king, but we'll see it's not the king that they expected. He's not really going to pan out in the way that they hoped. See, they had their standard and he fulfilled that standard. But his standard and their standard was very different. Same goes with the world. The world has a certain standard of what success is. If you look good, if you have money, if you're lean, if you're this, if you're that. that, And this is what success is. God's standard of success is very different. We don't see anything about Samuel being handsome. We don't know what he looked like. But his standard of success is much different than the world's standard of success. And it's easy for us to get sucked into this. You don't have to be the person that everybody wants you to be. You don't. You don't have to try to please people. Okay, That doesn't mean that you're not supposed to love people, but ultimately you're called to please God. Your identity must be rooted in your relationship with God. I'll close with this. In John chapter 1, we're introduced to John the Baptist. And it says in John chapter 1, verse 19, it says this. John chapter 1, verse 19. (laughs) Excuse me. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Okay, religious leaders, they're asking John, who are you? Look what John says. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Who am I? I'll tell you who I'm not. I'm not God. I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. What defined John? The word of God. He said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet that you're looking for. The word of God tells me who I am. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. See, we don't have to be the person that everyone wants us to be. We just got to be the person that God wants us to be. And he tells us the type of people he wants us to be through his word. Don't be a, a people's king or a people's man or a, a, a people's woman. Be God's man. Be God's woman. How we do that is finding our identity in the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the text and God, how you give us positive and negative examples time and time again to to teach us um, to walk in the positive and not the negative. I pray, Lord, that that we wouldn't just be the people's people, not not that we wouldn't get along with people and, and have good relationships, but our, our desire wouldn't just to be to to uh, find our identity and what everybody wants us to be. Uh, as we see with with King Saul, Lord, but we would find our identity uh, in your word, uh, that when people look at us, they would say things like they said about Samuel, a man, a woman of God, honest. None of their words fall to the ground, honorable. And these character 
traits would, would be what defines us because that's who you are. Uh, and I pray again, Lord, we'd find our identity in your word and in your character. In Jesus' name, amen.